HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. afternoon and welcome to the start of the summer season of eating matters where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us i'm your host jenna liute and we're broadcasting live from roberta's on heritage radio network to kick off our season i am so pleased to have fellow host and my good friend katie Kiefer on the show today to talk about her new book what's the matter with meat katie a meat eater herself. Yes, I am. We're just going to throw that right out there to start. Um, offers a comprehensive look at the industrialized meat system, both at home and abroad, and the negative effects it has on our health, environment, and well-being. Katie, welcome to the show. And I just got a pin <laughs> with the book cover on it and a little your, bow. Your badge. I, my yeah. badge. I'm so excited it's about this. It's, it's bunting. You I, know, I, I like to call it that. I don't know what that means, but I love it. Yeah, I know. It's it's the fabric actually oh. has little cuts of meat on it. Oh, yeah. Isn't that so special? That is so special. <laughs> That was the most genius part of my entire marketing scheme, which otherwise has basically amounted to zero. Well, this show. Well, the show. Yes, this show and uh, hopefully a few more. Right. Um, But yes, on other networks even, possibly. We're hoping. We're hoping. Fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, you know, it should be because I want to start out by saying, obviously, congratulations. Well, thank you very much. publishing this book. And I have to say, I found it to be so informative and most importantly, totally approachable and engaging and perfect for anyone who wants to learn more about where the majority of our meat comes from. 
and and even for experts. It's just so it was very well done. Well, so. thank you very much. Oh, yeah, you're I wanted it to be a primer. I think that uh, the meat industry has traditionally shrouded itself in secrecy, mm-hmm. um, and it's only been in the last ten years or so that you know organizations like PETA and Mercy for Animals have been publishing these ghastly videos of uh, you know animal cruelty and so forth. And and really, you could almost date that back to the Westland Hallmark mm-hmm. episode, which was um, I'm trying to think when that was maybe around 2007. Um, and this was a, a viral video that showed uh, downer, what they call downer cattle, animals that have been taken off of the truck that they were transported in, and they were not in good shape, and there were a number of animals, or at least one that was captured on video, where the animal collapsed, and the handlers, the people who were working at the plant, uh, were seen uh, prodding it with electric prods. I think they even stuck a prod up its butt. Um, You know, just like appalling conditions and cruelty and that sparked an outrage and the uh usda shut the plant down um and they never reopened they never recovered from that so well, that's and, and also i think a huge amount of um meat was recalled as a result of that video that's surprising i know i typically find some of PETA's, for instance their work and their at their like billboards to be very annoying very annoying but in this case i think it does shed like or has in the past shed really important light on some of the kind of atrocities that really go under the radar i, I think it's I, I think you know annoying as they may be and and certainly uh the gadfly that they have been in the side of the meat industry has has brought about significant change in animal welfare yeah and uh without those people would continue to think that animals are being raised on pasture and bucolic yes exactly you know frolicking about my my one vegan friend would be very annoyed to hear that i'm trash talking pita a little bit but i've got one yeah well you know we all have one (laughs) i I love her i love one unfortunate No, I mean, I am a card-carrying carnivore. I've always really enjoyed meat. Um, I worked as a butcher for a while when I was younger, when I was in the culinary wow. business. Yeah, and that's really where I got my my interest, strangely enough. I was really drawn to the, the whole meat industry. I don't know why. Yeah. And well, then... Yeah, One thing led to another. Well, I was going to ask. I mean, you've been... Um, you, we have similar shows, um, food policy mm-hmm. and industry shows, and you've been doing this for longer than a lot longer than I have. So in kind of covering all of these food system issues, I'm wondering what prompted you to, to like select this particular topic to write a book about. I was actually commissioned to write this. Ooh, how fancy. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I owe it all to Patrick Martins who, you know, started the heritage radio network uh-huh. and who was the proprietor of heritage foods USA. And what happened was, is that my publisher, which is called reaction books in London, uh, they publish a lot of single subject books and uh, about different food products, ice cream, salt, fish, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they last year they launched a new series called Food Controversies. So this is one of probably what will end up being about 10 books in the series, but they include nice. snack food, junk food, meat, um, I, I can't remember what the other titles are going to be, but mine is the most recent that's rolled out. I want to write a book. <laughs> well, <laughs> you may want to, and you probably can. Um, don't expect to make any money. <laughs> 
I mean, I basically wrote this book for free. Uh, um, and I think that a lot of people, I mean, I'm hoping that it will be sort of my gateway to writing the next book with yeah. a publisher that pays me more. Yeah. Um, and, and for the bona fides that it, you know, endows me with as a published author, for some Absolutely. reason that still carries weight with people. Yeah, well, and, yeah. I mean, and this is, this is not just any book. It's really, like I said, it is really well done. And I've written a you. lot, I read a lot. Um, I've read a lot of, you know, books about the food industry. Okay. So let's, let's get into this. Um, oh, let's get into this. Um, uh, who are the major players? Let's kind of set the stage. I like to do that in the beginning of all my shows. Sure. Who, when we talk about kind of the industrialized meat um, system, who are the major players, the dominant players that kind of, uh, yeah, over like are responsible? Well, in this country, um, but we can talk about the five uh, production centers that I profile in the book. But in this country, it is Cargill, JBS, uh, National, and... Um, Tyson. Tyson. Yeah. Uh, and then that's the cattle. But Tyson also crosses over into chicken and some pork. Um, there's Smithfield, of course, which is the big kahuna in the pork industry. There's Hormel. Are they Chinese? They are now owned by a Chinese uh, company, putatively okay. called a Chinese company. It's actually a company that has... It was originally bought by Shuang Hui. Mm-hmm. And then right after that, Shuang Hui morphed into something called the WH Group. And then it was made clear that the WH group was actually somehow deeply connected to the Chinese government. Um, But that is true of a lot of Chinese industry. Uh, So it's not particularly unusual that it it has industrial ties only insofar as we have uh, rather strict laws on the books about um, governments buying agricultural land in this country. So um, (laughs) We don't really like that, yeah. Not not really. I mean, I've actually been researching another article about that, um, and I thought that it was, like, much more rampant than it is. Um, But what really is happening is that banks are buying... Uh, agricultural land for pension funds, hedge funds, and stuff like that. That's another topic. Yeah. Um, But anyway, so it's those guys. uh, So let's see. Uh, JBS owns Pilgrim's Pride, which is a a big chicken company. There are four big chicken companies. Those are Tyson, Pilgrim's Pride, Sanderson, and... um, why can't I remember the fourth one? Because no. I'm slightly senile. But that's basically... <laughs> oh, Purdue, duh. Um, yeah, so those are the big players. So basically what I'm saying is that each one of these three meat categories is controlled by... Chicken, poultry, by, pork. Yeah, or poultry, chicken, poultry, cattle. pork, and cattle. Yeah. Are conf- each have basically four major players with some crossover, obviously. Um, and those major players control roughly 80% of all the processing and distribution of those categories. Wow. Yeah. That's serious, serious market consolidation. And yeah. it's had a very uh, negative impact on uh, farmers and ranchers across the country. In fact, there's a lot of uh, noise in the in all of those, um, in the, in the uh, cattle and in the uh, poultry markets right now, there are two class action suits against the big four poultry producers um, alleging price fixing, both towards both price fixing. Right. Exactly. That's what happens when you have a monopoly. Yeah. Um, So price fixing toward for the grocery stores or the grocery distributors, as well as price fixing for the actual growers. And the same is true. There's a the um, uh, the attorney general in New Mexico is looking into price fixing allegations uh, from cattle producers in his region because there's a lot of cattle running on those uh, New Mexican ranges. So you you talk about one of the another one of the issues um, or kind of realities of um, all three, maybe, um, you know, types of uh, industries um, being vertical and horizontal integration. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us some of the kind of 
uh, effects of that? Like, is it is it just furthers their control over the market, all aspects of the market? Oh, absolutely, indisputably. It also has a very negative impact on rural economies, and here's why. See, when when the when these industries were more were less integrated, less uh, monopolized, um, you would have, for example, in a town that had a meatpacking plant, you might have a bunch of different farmers growing their uh, animals. You'd have one, maybe one, maybe two processing plants if it's in a heavy, heavy-duty, you know, animal uh, uh, agricultural uh, setting. You'd have feed mills. You'd have farmers growing the grain. You'd have people working those feed mills. You'd have people working in processing. You'd have a low, a whole range of jobs that kind of prop that town up. Um, what happened when the when these industries and this started with the poultry industry and has been followed by the by the the pork industry, when those companies began to consolidate and integrate, it meant that they put a lot of those uh, workers out of out of business. By um, they would, for example, if you were the kind of farmer who raised chicks. Uh, you you wouldn't have a market for your chicks anymore because they would be coming directly from the company. Um, if you were a farmer who ro- raised grain, that company would not be buying grain from you because they would be buying, in some cases, like Smithfield, growing their own grain. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might come locally. That might be a contract. It might be a lease. But whatever it is, it's it's not supporting the same wide swath of, of people working in the towns. And then are the growers part of the vertical integration or do they Very much so. separate? Yeah, no, no, no. The growers are kind of key to it. Uh, the vertical integration has uh, allowed these companies to, um, instead of actually growing the birds themselves, they contract with farmers to grow the birds. And by contracting with the farmers, they set all of the prices so the the farmer, um, instead of being able to compete with other farmers on the on the on the market mm-hmm. for the quality of his birds, he's absolutely bound to take the price, whatever the price is, and which he does not know in advance um, from that integrator. Wow! So it would be like a Tyson or a Purdue or yeah. somebody like that. So, so their hands are tied. Absolutely. I mean, this can be read in much greater detail. Uh, um, both in the book, but also especially in Chris Leonard's great book, The Meat Racket, um, which gives a whole history of the Tyson family and the development of of, um, of the way the poultry industry functions now. But we're not here to plug his book. No, we're not. But I will actually, I will always plug Chris <laughs> yes, Leonard's book. A, he's a great guy. But secondly, he's so <laughs> that book is so good. And you learn so much about farming in America. So let's kind of, um, you know, sort of paint the picture of what these uh, farming practices look like. Just broadly speaking, let's take it industry by industry. So if you were to kind of get a uh, snapshot of of what it looks like. Um, from like a, a cattle processing plant, like a chicken growing, you know, growers and processing, mm-hmm. um, and pork. You okay. Know, well, the, the chicken, and, themes, chicken yeah. and pork uh, basically function the same way with this contract growing. So what happens is that a guy signs a contact with an, signs a contract with an integrator, like a Tyson or a Smithfield. And then uh, the company says to him, okay, you have to have this particular type of uh, dwelling for these animals, and they write the specs essentially for what that house is going to look like, and then um, and I'm assuming they don't really go above and beyond when, well, when in writing those specs to you know to uh, to like well, prioritize it, animal welfare and, and feed <laughs> well no and, not exactly yeah. because the idea is to cram as many animals in as you can. Um, it sort of depends on whether you're doing, uh, if you're an egg-laying guy, which I don't know much about the egg business, but that's where the battery cages came in, where everybody got so wound up about the battery cages, Wait, are those which are like truly horrible. Really, really small cages? Yeah, they're really tiny. They're like 17 square inches. 
So an, a, a bird cannot literally cannot stretch its wings, right. and it certainly can't move around. And that's it's very similar to what we did to pigs, which was to put them into either a gestation crate or a farrowing crate. And so in those cases, and this is also very common. And as you know, uh, you know a lot of companies have now due to. Co- public pressure have committed to phasing out things like battery cages and mm-hmm. phasing out um, gestation and farrowing crates. Now, the advantage to a farmer for, for those, especially with pigs, is that you can really easily calibrate uh, exactly the amount of feed and nutrients that your animal is getting. You minimize the infant mortality because pigs tend to roll over on their piglets. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's gross, but it's just what happens. I mean, it's, it's a real bummer. <laughs> yeah, it's a real bummer for the piglets, especially. Um, but, you know, the thing is, is that uh, if an animal has enough space, this isn't likely to happen, but if it's in a, in a sort of more confined space than it is. Um, so there's a lot of finger pointing about group housing, whether or not that's successful. But the, the reality is, is that pigs do better in group housing than they do in a farrowing uh, crate or a gestation crate. So the gestation crate means that the an- the farmer is like exactly monitoring the amount of food and water that this animal is taking in for optimum health of the piglets. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, but she can't move around. She's she can just stand in her stall. That's all she can do. And then when she's in the farrowing crate, she's on one side and the piglets, which need more warmth are sort of off to the side and then they can come and suckle when they need to but they are protected from the size and bulk of the mommy so um but these are for for pigs especially and this is why you know i'm i'm kind of lax about other forms of protein about you know beef and and chicken but i will not buy commercial pork i just can't bring myself to because the pigs are basically as smart as a three-year-old child yeah. And um, there have been studies that show pigs uh, can learn things like how to play a computer game. They can manipulate a joystick. I've seen a f- I've seen that film. Wow. Um, so these are these are intensely sociable, intensely curious, sentient animals. Um, that if you are planning on eating them, you should really want them to have the best possible life. I think that's that's just kind of you know, a moral obligation. And while I understand the impetus to make cheap meat, um, and I also understand that Americans demand it, um, I think that uh, that, you know, those particular animals really need to be got a break. They need group housing. They need stimulation inside the pens. I mean, that's the other thing is that they're, you know, they they become quite abusive to one another um, when they have nothing to do, when they don't have enough mental stimulus, like things to play with. Yeah. And things to do, then they start biting each other and, you know, chewing each other's ears and tails off. How do they do that if they're in, you know, if they're in, if they're not in a crate? Yeah. Right. I mean, they're not always. If if they're overcrowded in a confined environment. Yeah. I mean, for a sow, yes. But for other pigs, pigs that are not breeders are not in a crate. Not all pigs are in a crate, only the ones that are making babies. Oh, right. So the other pigs are all sort of squished together in a pen. And if there's nothing for them to do, they will resort to beating the crap out of each other. And that's what, and chickens do the same thing. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. What about uh, cattle? Cattle, they have a better, uh, I mean, up until they go to the feedlot, I'd say on the whole that they are in better shape. They mostly grow up on pasture or with some forage. You know, they can't, obviously in, you know, winter weather, you don't want all your cows out in the field. Like for instance, we just had a terrible blizzard in uh, the Great Plains in Kansas and thousands of head of cattle were lost. Uh, because of this, 
you know, two feet of snow, freezing temperatures. Meanwhile, very muddy, sloppy underneath. Yeah. And the it's, they haven't counted how many animals they have <laughs> lost. Yikes. But uh, it was significant. And this is right on the heels of the wildfires they had in March. So it's really been a tough Yeah, a but tough global winter. warming doesn't exist, so it's fine. Yeah, right, it's totally exactly. Fine. Yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, so they're, they're better. So Their they're conditions better. are better. Yeah, I, I, think of, I think of cattle, I think of the confined animal feeding operation right. that you talk a lot about in your book. That happens at the very end of the cow's life. Now, I mean, the fact is, is that because of the way we have manipulated genetics and also uh, the way we use drugs um, to speed growth, whether it's antibiotics or uh, beta agonists. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um the animals grow a lot faster than they used to. So typically a, an animal, a cow, a beef cow, will go to uh, slaughter around 11, between 11 and 13 months. So um, they will spend the last couple of months maximum on grain. Um, and that's what gives them the delicious extra, you know, intramuscular marbling that Americans have become so fond of. Um, you know, a nice marbled piece of meat is usually a pretty tender, delicious, juicy yeah, it's real thing. real good. Yeah, right. But that comes at a cost. And um, the cost is, first of all, the grain. And that's why we grow so much corn and soy in this country, not just to feed cattle, but also to feed pigs and chickens, but still. Um, And then also, uh, it's not really the optimum diet for cattle. And so there's always a kind of uh, equation going on um, within the feedlot to try to make sure that the cow does not eat too much grain that causes acidosis in the rumen, which then causes it not to eat at all, and then it doesn't gain weight. So it's Some negative health effects. Very for the, yeah. tricky. Very tricky. So they them. grow up a lot, like mostly on pasture, and then they go to then they go to the feedlot, feedlot yeah. and mm-hmm. the feedlot. AKA a CAFO t- right, typically. Exactly. Concentrated area feeding operation. Um, and then when are they slaughtered on site at the, at the CAFO? Sometimes. They? Okay. It depends. Um, but not usually, I think usually they're transported to a slaughtering plant. Um, because you'd have to, a slaughterhouse processes, a big one will process as many as 4,000 cattle in a day. Wow. Yeah. That is. It's breathtaking. It is. Yeah. My breath was just taken away. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, so I visited a plant like that in Fort Collins, and they do 4,000 a day. And um, that's in two eight-hour shifts. Jeez. Yeah. So how they many, don't... How, how many workers were uh, You know, I, I don't remember. Um, but it was a very large fabrication floor, for yeah. sure. Um, but the speed and the engineering with which they have figured out how to deconstruct an animal is just incredible. And by the way, you think 4,000 is a lot for cattle. They can do 16,000 pigs in a day. Jeez. Yeah. And the way you broke it down in the book was it really um, kind of gave me pause. You know, I am I am a, an aggressive meat eater. I love it. <laughs> you know, I, I really I try to really uh, make responsible choices with regard to the type of meat that I eat. Sure. Um, but, you know, I think it's really important for somebody who chooses to eat meat to have, you know, insight into how an animal is raised and slaughtered and, you know, why making, eating responsibly raised meat is so important. But that even, that gave me pause reading the, the, how, how a cow is processed. Well, the main thing is, I mean, and this is where Dr. Temple Grandin has been such an incredible force for good. Um, and who is that? Um, Temple Grandin is a professor of animal uh, studies at Colorado State University. I think is the, I think it's Colorado State. It's an agricultural school, and she's autistic, and um, her autism has allowed her. Uh, somehow to understand how animals process information in a way that is much more uh, um, accurate than anybody else has. And so 
back in the 1990s, she was approached, believe it or not, by McDonald's. Um, because what was happening was is that cattle were going through the slaughtering process as it existed, and they were coming out with a lot of lesser quality meat. And the reason it was lesser quality is because the animals were so stressed as they went into the slaughterhouse. And, um, and that ha- was a result of very poor animal handling practices, which were endemic to the industry. People really didn't know. And um, Temple Grandin broke down. She behaved as if she were a cow herself. And she had observed their behavior so accurately for so many years that she understood that the things that frightened them were the things that were making them stressed out and releasing all this cortisol into their bloodstream and resulting in tough uh, tough meat and what they call dark cutters. It makes them very dark in color color and so you can't really sell that meat as a whole muscle cut it has to go into ground and you lose your profit margin there okay so um anyway so mcdonald's hired her to figure out how to design better animal handling protocols and what she did was create something called the serpentine which is a track that the animals follow that makes them feel like they're going in a circle Because that is, for whatever reason, that is what their natural behavioral pattern is. So instead of going in a circle, they go in a serpentine, but they think it's a circle. And then at the end of the serpentine, and they're one at a time, they're in single file. At the end of the serpentine is a box. And they step into the box, and this platform comes up. And then the sides squeeze in, and that helps to calm the animal. At least, and then the, then it goes through this little chute, and there's a guy on the other side. He doesn't know what's coming. Doesn't know what's coming. And if it works right, it is really a brilliant system because the animal feels nothing. It has a tremendous blow of pressure. It's a hydraulic, uh, hydraulically operated six-inch captive bolt stunner is what it's called. And it, it, it basically stuns the animal to the point of insensibility, at which point... They will stick it in the jugular, and the animal bleeds out in a couple of seconds. After it's hung so, by the hoof, you said. Yes, by the hung leg. by the ankle. They yeah. slip a, a hook through it. But Ugh. it doesn't, I don't, I don't believe that it feels that. I know it's awful, but I mean, we're killing the animals. So, I mean, one must, if you're going to eat meat, right. you have to accept this exactly. is what happens. Exactly. This is what happens. And um, you've got to make your peace with that. And you just have to hope that this particular facility, whatever it may be, is is one that takes that all of those protocols very seriously. Was that widely adopted after yes. her research came out? It has been widely adopted. Well, that's good. Uh, particularly in the larger plants, which have the money in order you know, to do this. And it's been adopted worldwide, I might add. People all over the world have... Uh, have and, and I'll tell you something else really cool about Temple Grandin. Yeah. Um, not to get too off at the topic here, no. but, but when Temple devised this system, the serpentine and the whole sort of like the, the thing, the platform coming up and the animal being ridden in on that on that little platform with a little gentle pressure on the sides. She did not want anyone to make money off of that. So she published the plans on her website so that everyone could access them. That's awesome. Right? Yeah. She's an amazing, amazing woman. Um yes, that, that you is. You need to see that hard. documentary on her or the or the, you know, biopic with Claire Danes. Oh, I've seen it. Oh, that's who she is. I haven't seen it. You have to see it. I will see it. I will see it. (laughs) I'm like, I've seen it. I've totally seen it. (laughs) Please, Katie. (laughs) Of course you have. Of course I have. (laughs) I'm an expert. (laughs) You know, she's the one who gave me, she gave me the tour around that Fort Collins plant. 
oh, that would be, it would really be an incredible thing to it see. It was, that's why I was able to describe the slaughtering process so accurately because of course yeah. I had notes from it, but I also, frankly, yeah, you're I never going to forget literally it. Literally never forgotten yeah. it. I mean, it was really something. Um, okay. So w- w- the book talks a lot about, um, obviously the negative consequences of this uh, system of meat production that is so dominant in our marketplace today. And all of the themes were very interrelated. And, you yeah. know, and um, one of the things that you, you meant you talk a lot about is the use of antibiotics. So I want to kind of break down for our listeners in what ways are they currently administered in what species and, you know, who is responsible for doing it? Uh-huh. This has been an issue uh, going back, um, I think it was probably in the late 50s that they made the discovery that uh, the use of, of low-dose antibiotics actually not only, this is as CAFOs or, you know, con- concentrated area feeding operations, no matter what the what the animal, as, as that system ramped up, they needed to find a way to protect their animals from disease because they were in such confined quarters. So they started with the low-dose uh, of antibiotics as a prophylactic against illness. But then they discovered that and this is not completely understood to this day, that these low-dose antibiotics also promoted growth. It promoted, uh, you know, muscle growth in the animals. And, of course, that's what you want because we're eating the muscles, right? Mm-hmm. So um, so then it became like, whoa, that really took off. Because, I'm assuming faster. Yeah, way faster. faster. And that's why we have, for example, cattle that come to slaughter weight at uh, 11 to 13 months instead of 18 to 22. Um, and pigs, which used to take a year, now take six months. So, wow, and chickens, this partly, partly because of antibiotics and partly because of genetic manipulation, chickens now take seven weeks from hatch to slaughter. What are they um, naturally? 26. <laughs> That is like I mean, the creepy. That is very. There's something oh, very disconcerting about that. Well, I don't know if you've been seeing, but there are. Uh, there's quite a movement amongst um, sort of the the Humane Society of the United States and other groups to, and and even the chicken industry itself is beginning to roll back that very very fast growing um, model because it's for one thing the breasts of these chickens are getting way too big and they develop something called Woody Breast Syndrome where the <laughs> muscle is actually re- like hard. Oh. And it must be very uncomfortable for the animal, but um, but it also means that it diminishes the value of the breast, yeah. you know, because breast meat is typically quite expensive, right? I don't know so, why. I think it's like the the worst part of the animal. Personally. That's called marketing, darling. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> who wants a chicken breast? Not me. Ugh. I'm all I'm all about the thighs. Yeah, absolutely, I'm a thigh girl. Yeah, betcha. <laughs> um, but anyway, so um, so so they discovered this, and then um, in 1977, I think it was, the FDA made some attempt to start rolling this set back as they began to see what's called multi-drug resistance in uh, in pathogens, in yeah, common you, illnesses, common foodborne illnesses. You you said that, you know, the industry kind of started to sound the alarm as early as the 70s. And I mean, we're going to, I'm going to ask if there have been major strides made in this, uh, in this area. I'm going to go on a limb and say no. <laughs> Actually, no. I, I'm, I'm going to say yes, because um, not so much in the United States and other areas, but the, Uni- the European Union... Ha- uh, I think by the 1994-98 had in Denmark, in the Netherlands, um, and mm, maybe in France. No, not in France. But Denmark and the Netherlands had basically stopped using prophylactic, because uh, they mostly grow pork there, 
prophylactic use of, of antibiotics altogether. And as a result, their multidrug-resistant bacteria load began to diminish. So it's, the proof was in the pudding. Right. But American process, American growers um, or American meat companies have really uh, stupidly and... Um, I don't know how to say this in strong enough terms, uh, you know, just stubbornly refused to accept the science. And it's kind of like not accepting climate change. Right. Um, it's been proven over and over and over in multitudes of studies that excessive use of antibiotics, uh, whether in a medical setting like a hospital or in an animal setting like a, you know, like a contract farmer, it produces multidrug resistant pathogens. Now, we have four major uh, foodborne illness groups mm-hmm. in this country. Salmonella, um, uh, listeriosis, campylobacter, campylobacteriosis, and um, E. coli. The big jack-in-the-box... What, what is uh, the... E. coli is Escherichia coli. Oh, no, I, no, I, oh. Know, I know that. The capillaris. Oh, campylobacteriosis. That one. Campylobacter is actually very, very common and primarily found in poultry. Okay. Um, Salmonella also ubiquitous. I mean, frankly, we all have these organisms in our bodies already, and most of them are harmless to us. Mm -hmm. But what happens with these multidrug resistant, either if you get sick from food, usually you are going to get one of these, typically now, nowadays, Mm -hmm. you are going to get one of these multidrug resistant strains. Um, So for example, um, the Jack in the Box outbreak in 1994, which spurred an absolute change and upheaval in the way meat is inspected and, um, you know, basically kept safe. That was litigated by Bill Marler, who we yes, who we had was. on our I've had on the show before. He's fascinating. He's a great guy. Yeah. yeah. I've had him on a lot as well. I really like him a lot. And I read his his uh, food safety his blog, blog yeah. a lot. Um, but anyway, he litigated that. And uh, in that case, uh, Jack in the Box had deliberately undercooked its uh, hamburgers because they were getting too tough and dry. Um, and so uh, something like six or 800 people uh, became ill, mostly in the Northwest, and all at once from, um, and uh, f- at least four children died. Maybe it was nine. I don't have the figure right in front of me, but it was a significant number of kids. And that really got people's attention. And um, and it was discovered that they all suffered from the same uh, serotype of E. coli. It was called 0157H7. And 0157H7 happens to be one of these multidrug resistant bacteria. Mm-hmm. Now you don't necessarily use antibiotics to treat E. coli, um, which is one of the things that makes it so um, deadly when it's in this, uh, you know, in this sort of more virulent, amped up form. But um, in any case, once they figured that out, that was in the 1990s. Then around 2000. There was a lot of pushback on the industry about using antibiotics, and the, and the industry was like, we have to do it. Uh, meat prices will rise exponentially. It's not possible to you know, grow meat the way we grow it without using antibiotics. And in fact, I even gave two talks to the Animal Agricultural Alliance and to the National Institute on Animal Agriculture just about this and uh, maybe seven years ago. Okay. That was when they thought I was like on the side of the meat industry. <laughs> so sneaky. <laughs> Yeah, so sneaky. It was very sneaky of me, and, and now I'm basically, you know, blackballed. But um, <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Wait till they get a load of this book. 
I don't even know what's coming. <laughs> they don't. Yeah. I haven't sent one. I must say, I should have sent review copies to some of their journals, but I did not because I just didn't want to deal with the pushback from them. But anyway, to, to cut this long story shorter, um, what happened in 2011 is that um, the FDA finally issued two guidances about how how you could use um, how you could use uh, antibiotics in an agriculture in an animal agricultural setting, and what antibiotics you could use. In other words, the ones that were medically important, like cephalosporins. Mm-hmm. Um, had to be taken out of that rotation. They weren't allowed to use those anymore. But the other ones, like um, doxycycline, all the tetracyclines are still in animal agriculture. Uh, penicillin is still in agriculture. What did, what did the regulation kind of... Or is, was it's it a regulation? It's not a regulation. Or was That's it a the thing. It's a guidance. So that... And then the other one was that, they, that, um, that there had to be a veterinary feed directive, meaning that veterinarians had to actually write a prescription for these drugs. Who does did it currently? No one, the farmer himself, the grower himself. He would just buy them over the counter, basically. Wow. Yeah. So that's why this has become such a problem. And the FDA does not have the resources or the USDA to actually monitor this compliance. So first it was up to the drug companies to change what's called off-label use so that they couldn't use it for growth promoting. Um, Does the guidance, quote guidance, uh, refer or relate only to growth or is it also prophylactics? Also prophylactic. Yes. They're supposed to really only be treating these animals if they're sick. Okay. Um, but both are, I don't know about the growth promoting because they've taken that off-label use off of the, the drug companies have complied with that. Um, but what's happened now is that basically the FDA is just just now, I actually put this in my show last, uh, last week in, in my new segment, um, they are just now conducting a survey to see what kind of compliance has happened since those directives came into, um, they were developed in the 2011. Also, Barack Obama signed a whole thing about, oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I can't read it because I don't have my glasses. Okay. Never mind. But thank no. you for giving me a cheat sheet there. <laughs> I, think, I think it was, I think the regulation is just for, just for growth. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, the point is, is that um, not only did Barack Obama sign a, you know, a, a law into effect about the regulation of the use of antibiotics. But in 2017, that's this year, mm-hmm. the veterinarian feed uh, directive goes into effect and they can no longer buy this stuff over the counter. So it has to go through the vet. So it now has to go through the vet. Now yeah. in Europe, it's been going through the vet f- forever. Like yeah, they since always, the they 1990s. They always have things figured out oh, there's so from a much, food perspective. Oh, well, what they are is they are public-minded. They are not as greedy as we like, are. Like, what's that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they actually think about public health. I mean, the, the World Health Organization, Dr. Margaret Chan, a couple of years ago said, you know, we are basically barreling down a road to post-antibiotic apocalypse. Yeah. And until hospitals and animal agriculture gets their act together, you know, we're really in danger of, of dying from the most minor thing. Yeah. yeah I, that, I just think that's a message that kind of... It, doesn't resonate yet with people. I don't, and I don't really know why. I think that people just can't, don't really accept it or can't wrap their heads around it. Because if they did, if they really knew the implications, we would have massive change very quickly. Um, okay, so I, we have to take a really quick commercial break. Oh, okay. But, um, and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we're going to talk more about this um, in terms of. Yeah, there's one more thing I want to say about it. So yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're going to talk. Come on. Yeah. We're going to talk. We'll, more. Do, we'll oh. do the sponsor drop. Thanks, Vitor. And, um, and then we'll, we'll come right back with the one, my last point about antibiotics. Oh, okay. Perfect. (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today um, I am speaking with Katie Kiefer about her new book, What's the Matter with Meat? <laughs> okay, you had one more point about antibiotics before we moved on. Um, yes, and my point is this. Most people think when we talk about antibiotics uh, in our food system, um, they think that the antibiotics are actually on the meat. And I want it to be clear that they are not on the meat. Animals are weaned off the antibiotics. It's not in the meat. Okay. You don't have to worry that you're eating antibiotics. That's the last, Well, then you know, how do we become resistant to them? We are not resistant. It's the pathogens that live on the outside of the meat that are resistant. And those pathogens are transferred by poor handling practices, undercooked meat, um, hamburger, you know, any kind of ground meat has got all those nooks and crannies where the, what was on the exterior is now on the interior. Same thing with needle tenderized. Don't ever buy needle tenderized meat ever. Yeah. And if you're going to buy ground meat, if you can buy it at a butcher and make sure that they're grinding it right fresh there, yeah. that would be your best yeah. bet. You have a, a point in the book that says never wash your chicken, which A, was one of the one of the first things we learned when we were uh, in culinary school when we got to the chicken portion of the uh, curriculum. But B, I think is really misunderstood. I think a lot of people still do it. Oh, yeah. And the of course, the um, implicate the, the repercussion could be that you splash... Salmonella all over your countertop. Absolutely. On your sponge, and then you wipe it all over your counters. You wipe it, you know, I mean, it it really is. Don't, yeah, you must not wash your chickens. Also, it makes no sense. They will cook. I mean, any bacteria will die from the cooking. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you really want to avoid that. Um, Okay. So, what about, so, so that's, uh, so is that the main um, issue is, okay, actually. You mean about multi drug resistant bacteria? no. And a post-apocalyptic, a post-antibiotic <laughs> apocalypse. Just yeah, I'm just that. Another one of my favorite um, writers, uh, Marin McKenna, has written a couple of books about this, and I highly recommend them. So beyond kind of antibiotic resistance, um, you know, with among the animals, 
Um, uh, and the transmission to humans, obviously. Mm. Yeah. What are some of the other results, um, negative health consequences? Um, maybe... If, both, for the animal? Well, no, for, for, um, for the farm workers. And also maybe the population, the general population, you well, know, beyond, beyond antibiotic One resistance. of the, well, I mean, uh, I th- one of the key things that I think people should be aware of is that, is that um, uh, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, otherwise known as MRSA. Okay. What does that mean? Okay. It developed in, it's, well, it's methicillin is a penicillin drug, right? Okay. Which was used to, to treat uh, uh, Staphylococcus or staph infections. Mm-hmm. Um, Look at you just dropping all these terms, Katie. I'm <laughs> telling you, I practice. <laughs> I clearly didn't. I couldn't pronounce one of the four major uh, pathogens, so it's embarrassing. Not at all. You know, I did spend a long time researching oh, this yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. Right? You did write the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and also, I've talked to a lot of scientists about it. Um, so, I, you know, I, I found this a very alarming. In fact, I did, like, m- weeks, if not months, of programming on this station about antibiotic resistance to the point where Erin Fairbanks, when she was the director, came to me one day and she She's was like, like enough. okay, enough with that. Can we go on to another topic, perhaps? You're like, well, at least you're listening. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but um, I don't. I mean, I think that's enough of a consequence. I mean, you know, the the rapid growth promotion in general doesn't really hurt them, hurt the animals. So it's, it's that, and the the fact that they're dis- prevented from getting dis- common diseases that would sweep through a barn or a house uh, normally um, is a good thing. Um, I think that there's a, there are other drugs that have uh, deleterious effects that we uh, in the United States use quite liberally, and many other countries have banned, and that is a, a class of drug called beta agonists. And those are also used as growth promotion. And I, I suspect that there will be um, a considerable uh, uptick in the use of those drugs as uh, antibiotics are further phased out of, of animal agriculture in the coming you know, months and, and years. How do we as a consumer know if we're eating meat that was treated or overtreated with antibiotics? We don't. I mean, the, these animals are, the, these drugs are withdrawn before the animal goes to slaughter for as much, some, usually as, up to two weeks. Um, they will wean them off of, um, of any antibiotics, really indeed any drug, so that there is very little drug residue left in their system. That's an FDA mandate, and they have to do that. Okay. So, um, again, as I say, there's no, there are no antibiotics in the meat itself. That right. doesn't exist. So it's mostly, you can, you can maybe assume that if an animal was raised on pasture for the majority of its life and maybe not sent to a CAFO kind of, uh, you know, finished, maybe finished on grain, but was... Pro, it was like raised on a smaller, mid-sized farm, not overcrowded. They wouldn't need to use excessive antibiotics. Absolutely. And um, it that doesn't be. mean that they don't ever. I mean, uh, well, if an animal gets sick, it gets sick. Yeah, exactly. And um, but I think in general, I mean, antibiotics are expensive. Yeah. So um, for somebody who is not engaged in a CAFO, that's setting, a really good point. That is a really good point. Yeah, yeah. they're not gonna they're not gonna use them unless right. they need to. There's not. Yeah. Um, and that's another reason why uh, farm raised meat uh, that you buy in the farmers market seems so colossally and incredibly expensive. Um, and that's because the animals take longer to grow to slaughter weight. It takes yeah. a lot longer. It takes a lot more feed. It takes a lot more labor um, to get them to that slaughter weight. So, uh, so that price is reflected mm-hmm. in that you know in the extended husbandry that is necessary to keep them going. Um, I want to talk a shift tax a little bit um, sure. and talk about well and talk about food fraud. 
Oh yeah, that's a fun. That was a fun chapter. Which was something that I was uh, surprised that you know would be in this book and would would relate to the meat industry. I usually think of your you know the usual suspects of olive oil, honey, even fish, but not necessarily fish. Yeah, not necessarily meat though. So what does that look like? Um, Well, what prompted that is my publisher is British, and um, and about uh, I think it was in 2013 they had a major major discovery of horse meat in um, cheap ground meat. God, that is so upsetting to yeah, me. Yeah, it was, it was a little disturbing. Um, anyway, it was a fascinating, it was a really a fascinating chapter to write. The research was really interesting. And, um, and, it's, and, it, and it points to the opacity of our supply chain, meaning that, you know, when you're, especially if you buy processed foods, now you're, when you go into the grocery store, it's, I mean, I won't say it doesn't happen because it does. Because like this happened in Tesco's in England, which mm-hmm. is you know a, a wide, uh, a widely known and um, large grocery store chain, sort of mid level, I would say, kind okay. of like a Gristides, I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, slightly funky, but you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, so they so what happened was the Irish um, Food Safety Authority tested some meat from Tesco, and they discovered the presence of, of horse meat in it and a little bit of pork. So then they broadened Just for good measure. Right. Then they broadened well because the beef prices have been quite high because the supply got very tight. Um, so they began testing more widely and they discovered that it was in many 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 grocery store chains and then um, and they were and then they realized that it was in all these processed foods. Now I'm trying to remember since it's over a year since I wrote this. So I I can't remember whether Tesco's thing was um, like a cheap processed food with ground meat or whether it was just ground meat per se. But in general, I would say that processed foods are most likely to be the the harbor of uh, meat fraud because they're covered. You know, it's a processed food. It's meat. It's ground meat. It's you know got a lot of sauce on it. It's you just watered down. It's you said wa- well. Sometimes or like other additives. Yeah, it just says, you know, like they'll put uh, breadcrumbs or they'll put, um, you know, some other kind of filler. Yeah. Yeah. Just to bulk it up. Right. Because then it's cheaper to produce. And the grocers are doing that. Well, the manufacturing processors are doing that. It's not, I'm talking about processed foods like a lasagna or a jarred sauce with ground meat in it or something like that. Okay. Um, But it just, so this doesn't apply to regular ground meat that you get just pure ground meat. It could easily. I, okay. I, you know, I don't think it's, they didn't make it clear in any of the research that was like both things mm-hmm. were happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, it's easier to conceal it when it's in a processed food, right? I mean, mm-hmm. think of how tempting that would be if you were, if you were a manufacturer and you're making like a lasagna bolognese and you could put, you know, half a pound of horse meat to every half a pound of beef. Well, your price is just, I mean, your cost. Just I don't understand why horse meat is cheap, by the way. They're not. <laughs> typically very cheap to buy if you want to ride them but whatever well that's a whole other topic <laughs> i mean honestly that really is a whole other topic yeah it is it's yeah. um i don't know a lot about the horse meat um industry you know horse meat is still quite popular in uh italy for example i w- there was whenever i went to several uh, big markets in italy when i was traveling there last summer and uh they all had a horse meat stall yeah, yeah, there's uh, definitely be, and it was on menus a real, lot. Really, the French used to be very fond of it. They seem to be less I so now. That. Yeah. yeah anyway, gross. so food fraud is a forty billion dollar business worldwide, and it is engaged in uh, by um, organized crime, mm-hmm. <laughs> by drug cartels. I mean, it is just it's a huge business, and so in the case of this uh, experience in the in the United Kingdom, um, these. 
the, the fraudulent meat was found to be literally throughout Europe, and it was coming from so many different suppliers um, and traveling through so many different hands. So, like, a guy in Romania would sell it to a Polish guy, and the Polish guy would sell it to the, you know, guy in the Netherlands, and the Netherlands guy would turn it into something else and sell it to the French, and then the French would put it in, you know, that's how it worked. And that, I think the, the point of that chapter is to show that there's very little inspection going on um, in terms of the way food is sort of uh, moves along that supply chain. And it's really, it's really difficult to trace back food fraud um, because it is so, it's such a complex chain that it goes through mm-hmm. uh, before, it beca- before it gets to the consumer. Um, we do not in this in this country. Just to, sorry about that. We 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 test fish a lot more in this country, but we do we have, to my knowledge, and I could totally be wrong about this. But to my knowledge, there is no there is no one who has engaged in large scale testing of American meat products. So we don't know if food fraud is more common in the like in other markets versus domestically. Right. Um. Great. Yeah. I <laughs> know. Isn't that reassuring? Yeah. Yes. So. <laughs> Um, one more thing I wanted to talk, talk about before we wrap up, and I could obviously... Talk. Oh, we could go on I know, and on. on and on. I'm telling oh, you, I'm having so on. much fun talking about it. <laughs> just take you through line by line. Like, I actually know this stuff. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I did just have to read the book again. <laughs> Sorry about that. I did. I loved it. I enjoyed it. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a year away from looking at it, you know, because of course, when you do a project like this, you're like, you have absolutely no perspective whatsoever. So um, it was really fun to read it again this weekend. You're like, like, damn, I did a good job. And it's mine. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to talk about like super something super uplifting before we wrap up, and that is um, the the industrialized meat systems effect on the workers. You know, it's kind of notorious for being incredibly dangerous, especially specifically for processing cattle, um, but also, you know, really kind of taking advantage of its labor force. So can you tell us a little bit more about the labor violations in particular? Well, there's been a lot of reports um, from Oxfam uh, published a huge report about two years ago about uh, workers in a poultry industry. And I think the New Yorker just ran a big story um, about the Case Farm poultry company that was, you know, doing something. I haven't completely read the story yet, so I can't quote it. But um, basically what happens is this. Meatpacking used to be, you know, processing, butchering, all of that stuff that goes on in a slaughterhouse. That used to be a pretty middle class job, believe it or not. Um, it and was unionized. Quite. It was heavily unionized. It was well paid. I mean, in the seventies, butchers, you know, slaughterhouse workers were making around twenty bucks an hour, which was, if you think about nineteen seventies dollars, that was probably the equivalent of thirty five now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in Australia, indeed, there are still meatpacking jobs that are worth $32 an hour, um, but they are struggling to keep hold of their unions. And so what happened when the in the 80s, when the Reagan administration, and this happened in Britain with the Thatcher administration, that was the era of union busting. And when that started happening, at the same time, these companies were moving their slaughter plants out of urban centers like Chicago or Kansas City that have typically in the United States been where cattle or whatever were processed, and out into uh, sort of 
rural communities. It's so weird that to think of a processing happening largely in urban areas. It used to happen down in the meatpacking district here in the oh, yeah. New York City, right? <laughs> Hence the name. Yeah. But it's weird, right? It like you're going to bring the animals into a, you know, a more crowded urban environment to a city and then and then slaughter them. I mean, I guess it's closer processing to the grocery stores, but it just doesn't it seem exactly. um, counterintuitive for it some does. reason. It does. But so what happened is, is that a lot of those processing facilities moved way outside of urban centers and that made it harder for um, for these companies to find workers. So, and as the unions disappeared, then the protections that unions offered made the jobs less attractive to local population. And that's when guest workers or undo- largely undocumented immigrants at this point uh, have been imported or solicited to work in those plants. And then what happens there is that there's no union protection or very little. Um, and uh, people are expected to work uh, very long shifts. Um, they have pretty good protective gear, but they it is still remains a very, very dangerous job. And the most dangerous dangerous aspect of it is the speed with which they are required to process these animals. So remember when earlier we were talking about processing 4,000 cattle a day or 16,000 pigs. Um, It's just remarkable how fast they are expected to produce to create the same motion over and over again. And that's where you get these crippling neuromuscular uh, injuries that really can basically ruin a person's life. I mean, it will completely distort the skeletal structure of their hands. They develop these tremendous problems with their upper shoulders and neck. And they don't move them to another part of the line? Not usually, no. Um, Now, here's another great book to read about that, and that would be Ted Genoway's book, The Chain. Highly recommend that. Um. Yeah, you you said something in the book about like uh, workers disappearing into the like massive. That used to happen a lot. What was that? Those big meat grinders. Yeah, you know when they grind uh, meat for you know like huge amounts of meat, which you know every plant does. I mean, they're not just grinding like a a little couple pound chunk. I mean, they'll put stuff hundreds of pounds into these enormous meat grinders. In fact, somebody was killed not that long ago. It just really... Like four or five years ago, a guy was cleaning the meat grinder and the machine had not been disconnected and somehow the switch got... uh, Whatever. Yeah. That was a lawsuit. Yeah. Yeah, not to make light of that, but whole. yeah, really, that was, that was horrible. Oh, that I mean, so- it has gotten a lot better, but it's but because of the chain speed, it is extremely dangerous. And then there's a lot of abuse going on in terms of like not letting people pee; they can't go to the yeah, bathroom. I've read about. I that. mean, there are workers who literally wear diapers because of the um, speed because they cannot leave the line because anything that shuts down the line reduces the profitability of that company, and anything that reduces the profitability of that company is not tolerated. And so, you know, if people shut down the line for safety reasons for inspection reasons, for having to pee, they will soon find themselves out of a job. Um, how how does a consumer feel okay about purchasing meat? Now that we kind of laid out all of the uh, devastating oh, consequences. Just, just a kidding. couple. Oh. Yeah, I know. Okay, so just a couple. <laughs> and I'm, I am, you know, they're, everyone's probably like a little bit sufficiently t- grossed terrified, out. grossed out, right? So what can we yeah. say as a, as an, as fellow omni, to our fellow omnivores to continue them, you know, to encourage them to be so? I think it really comes down to being um, aware of the track record of the company from whom you are buying your food. So, um, you know, for example, I would say, even though I'm not a big, you know, I, I, I don't, how do I say this in a way that doesn't, you know, bring down the wrath of God, but for example, Purdue yeah. as a company, right now, Purdue it was right out of the gate, the first one of the big four processors to 
commit to phasing antibiotics out of their food chain. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was a very good thing. And um, and there have been a few other changes. They have different... They've all developed these different organic... Um, Those are quotation marks around that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, they, they probably are organic, but they're still confined animals. I mean, they're still... Yeah. But I think look at look at the track record of the company. Do some research. It's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting. And see what they're doing. What is their environmental footprint? What are they doing to improve their sustainability? How are they, you know, I mean, I know it's hard to look for things like how are they treating their workers, but stuff like the antibiotics is kind of important. Um, yeah. And I think also animals that are, are more or less kept out on patch. I'm a big fan of Nyman Ranch, for example, mm-hmm. um, because they have. Bought by uh, Tyson's? Nyman Ranch is owned by Purdue now. Purdue, yeah. But Purdue has only done one thing for them, which is recapitalize them. So they've actually, they are expanding because their model has been so successful in terms of being able to support family farms and still produce the kind of scale necessary to be a quote-unquote industrial player, i.e. getting your product out into, you know, mm-hmm. thousands of supermarkets and into thousands of restaurants. So I do think it is true that that we're kind of moving in the right direction, industry is moving in the right direction and be, trying to become more transparent. And to me, that seems like it's largely a result from consumer pressure. Yes. And so I think your advice, it sounds like, um, is to continue to apply that pressure and, and to be an informed consumer. Um, Absolutely. Another place, I'll just finish by saying another place that is applying pressure, believe it or not, is Wall Street. And the reason that is... That I am very surprised by. Yeah. And the reason is that these companies need to remain profitable. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are publicly traded. And so if they are engaging in practices that either do not meet the needs of the consumer yeah. or that have long-term ramifications in terms of sustainability, i.e. water use mm-hmm. or land use, that is going to have an impact on the profitability of the company and therefore the shareholder. And so there are a lot of companies, there, not a lot, but there are a number <laughs> of organizations out there that are putting fina- pressure yeah. on these companies to be more mindful about their water usage, mm-hmm. um, figure out how to dispose of their waste more more efficiently and um and you know some of the other problems that go along with this where can we find a copy of your book well (laughs) i'm hoping that it's in bookstores across the country but the reality is probably amazon is your best bet even though i love to support local bookstores i really haven't checked to see how many of them own have ordered it all right but you can ask your um you can ask your local bookstore to order it there you go there you go be a be a consumer who's informed and asked for what they want. Yeah, and you'll learn everything and much much more than you wanted to ever know about the meat industry. But you know, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. All right, Katie, thank you so much thank for you, coming Jenna. on the show. Uh, Katie's book is "What's the Matter with Meat." Um, I want to, when we're wrapping up, uh, thank our sponsors, of course, for their generous support. Um, our show music is by Tim Archer. I want to thank our engineer, uh, Vitor Hirsch. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe. Um, and if you like what you hear, leave us a note in the comments section. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.